slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I will be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Last week... Uh, we, we spoke with Dr. Tamar Hopkins and we will be continuing our discussion today. But before I launch into specifics, this episode of Doin' Time contains audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have died and discussion of deaths in custody. So we spoke with Tamar Hopkins, who is the lead researcher of a report that was released a couple of weeks ago entitled Policing COVID-19 in Victoria, exploring the impact of perceived race in the issuing of COVID-19 fines during 2020. And this was a project of Inner Melbourne Community Legal Centre. So today, Dr Tamar Hopkins is going to be our feature interview and our only interview, and we're going to be speaking with her quite specifically about her thesis and the background to racial profiling. And I'm going to be handing over to her very soon. Hello, Tamar. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks very much for your interest. It is lovely to have you. And it's not just about interest, Tamar. It really is about necessity. It's a very, very important topic and... I see this as a as a landmark thesis to stop racial profiling in Australia, specifically Victoria. Can you talk to us about the the thesis? Is it a thesis or a PhD or both? Yeah, it's both. It's both. It's a PhD thesis. Wonderful. So, yeah, I, I can. And I may as well start by giving you a bit of background into why Please. I did it. Please, yep. Yeah, so um, as, as your listeners might know, um, I started my kind of interest in this area when through working at the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre and being confronted by the most horrendous stories of police racism and, and violence towards African and Afghan young people in that area and started doing a whole lot of things like running criminal defences for those young people, um, submitting complaints, running race a big race discrimination claim against the police that settled in 2013, um, and, and just a whole series of, of legal activities. And during that period, I became really aware that Australia is really missing some key um, pieces of evidence about racial profiling that exists in other parts of the world and certainly doesn't have an advanced case law 
um, that that lawyers can rely on to show racial discrimination has occurred. These things just have not been litigated in Australia. People are not bringing cases, um, and there isn't kind of a you know an evidence base. That there is a lot of evidence, qualitative evidence about um, about discrimination. A lot of stories, cases, um, people talking about discrimination, but we don't have that quantitative evidence. Um, about you know really showing that that the experience of racialized people and particular racialized groups in particular are worse than white people, and so you know aware of this gap in in um, in evidence in Australia, I decided okay it's time to go out and try and collect evidence to to explore whether whether there is evidence of racial profiling that can be that can be obtained here, and so um, there is. One of the reasons that we have this gap in Australia is that police do not collect and release data on their activities in a routine way that allows people to kind of track what is going on. And these, this kind of data is available in the UK, many parts of Canada and the US, but just simply hasn't been obtained here in Australia, it hasn't been released by police. In Victoria is the only state at the moment where police even collect data about different racialized groups. Other places have have data by First Nations and white people, but really only um, very, very limited forms of data, not data that could track the, the targeting that police can engage in against these communities. And so what, um, what I did with this PhD, I, I did... Um, Two, two things. I started a process of getting doing FOIs for police for data, which ended me up in you know years of litigation in VCAT and wasn't getting anywhere. I am finally now getting somewhere with that with that uh, approach. But instead, realizing that I wasn't going to get the data I needed that way, I decided to take a different approach to gathering data, and that was to run a survey of the Victorian population to track their experiences with contact with the police. And so, and this was a survey based on a strategy that had been um, applied in the US in Kansas City by a group of researchers, um, Charles Epp and others, um, who were exploring you know, racialized differences in police treatment of people there and, and came up with this strategy um, of doing what's, what I've been calling a threshold test to test whether there's racial profiling in data, and so I thought, okay, let's give this a go in Victoria. Let's let's see what we can find out um, based on people's stop experiences. So what I did was I did a, a, a survey, a, um, a internet survey. So it had seventy-seven questions, an online Qualtrics survey, and that survey was advertised across Victoria in um, you know a number of ways. So it was advertised um, at through the Facebook sites of the Flemington and Kensington Legal Centre, the Federation of Community Legal Centres, through Aboriginal Legal Service, um, and by and through the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and distribution of a thousand postcards throughout Victoria um, uh, to libraries um, with the website where people could go, and also through this radio station. So um, did a, a card. Um, Advertising the survey on 3CR to get to get it out to as many people as possible, um, and so as a result of that kind of um, promotion of the survey, 
981 people responded over a period of five months to that survey. Um, and I, I asked them that the first question was, you know, what was their what was their racial background? And then secondly, if someone was to see them for the first time, what would be their best guess as some, as someone else how someone else would describe their racial background? Because what I was really interested in was not people's actual racial background, but the way they might be perceived by a first-time observer. Because that's what—that's the essence of racial profiling: is, is what do, those impressions that police have of the people that they go past on the street or in the car in cars. Um, what what is their impression of their their um, their racial background? So that was the key kind of. Um, variable in the survey and then I asked a series of questions about their most recent stop by the police what was the what was the reason that police gave them what happened um, and people were asked to give text box responses and tick box responses to all of those those questions and they this produced a very kind of rich database of information about that those police stops and so what I was able to do was to Divide, go through and, and have a look at the at the reasons and compare them with the legal justifications that police have for stopping people in Victoria, and whether there was you know some kind of reasonable basis for, for their decision, or whether it was just a, a stop that didn't have a basis. And so, for example, in Victoria, it's possible for the police to stop people. Um, to do a license and registration check or to do a preliminary breath test without any basis at all. So while that's legal, that's legal, it doesn't, it doesn't. There's no underlying offence that the police are witnessing before they decide to stop that person. And so that's. I was really interested in where there are the, are there any racial differences in who is getting stopped in this proactive way. So it might be technically legal but it's a proactive stop that doesn't have like an actual basis behind why the police are making that stop they're just going off on their hunch their sort of you know spidery sense their sort of sense generalized sense of suspicion as to who to, to stop for these these kinds of stops and so um what i was able to do then was have a look at the differences in terms of yeah the race racialized perceived racial background of those people and how the police were treating them. And what the what the survey, um, the results from the survey showed that there were very different responses that people were receiving. They were getting treated, um, the police were treating people quite differently depending on their, their racial background. And so, um, for example, racialised people, so this is everyone who is not white, um, compared with white people were being stopped for this proactive high discretion stop compared with a low discretion stop so that would be uh, a low discretion stop is where the police witness a, a traffic offense a serious traffic offense like speeding or going to a red light um, so when you, when you compare these high discretion with low discretion stops racialized people had a an odds ratio of 2.8 times more likely to be stopped for these high discretion stops than low discretion stops than white people. And the the um, the evidence for that that um, was very strong. So the p-values were for that um, statistical test was 
as was under 0.001. So it was a very clear finding that racialized people were being treated differently to white people in terms of those proactive stops. So basically what, what what's happening here is that the thesis demonstrates that Aboriginal and other racialised people are more likely to be subject to these types of humiliating experiences than white people. That's right, that's right. So there was a range of experiences that I was able to test. The, the main one was this difference in stop type, so proactive versus um, actually having a reason. And so I was just giving you the figures there for all racialised people, but particular groups of racialised people, and I looked specifically at um, Indigenous, uh, African, Pacifica and Middle Eastern appearing people, were even the odds for those people being subject to no um, proactive stops were even greater than white people. So it was even starker. The difference was even starker in the way the police were treating people um, in that those particular targeted groups. So, yeah, so that was that was quite a staggering finding, but there's there's even more than than that. So um, the, the study was able to look at, well, okay, once someone has been stopped, what happens then to the person? Um, and, and in vehicle stops, um, the, the, the treatment that the police were giving people was more likely to be unjustified. So if there wasn't a specific reason for what they were doing, when they were, um, when after they had stopped a targeted racialized person and a racialized person and a white person, so again we were seeing really big differences in the way the police were were treating policing um, targeted racialized groups to white people. So here we had, you know, really clear evidence that the police are operating. There are two systems of policing in Victoria. And that one, there, there is a, a kind of a more textbook version um, that the police roll out when they um, are policing white people. And there is this more kind of speculative, invasive and, and humiliating um, type of policing when police are policing particular racialised groups. So, yeah, it was, it's really clear, clear evidence from that data. And if I can just go to a few more data points. Yeah, please. It's just quite kind of disturbing. Um, So while I was looking at particular types of experiences that people had and just comparing, are these more likely to be experienced by um, these targeted racialised groups than white people? And I was able to find that the police pulling up beside a vehicle, like as they're driving along and they come and they sit, the vehicle next to that person, next to the vehicle, and look into the car, that um, Indigenous, African, Pacifica and Middle Eastern appearing people had four times the odds of having that kind of experience with police than white people. And that that particular group of people had nine times the the odds of police calling for backup um, before they actually spoke to them. So they'd pull over the person or put the lights on, the sirens on, stop their police vehicle behind them and then call for backup. So you'd have kind of a whole lot of police cars coming. And so these racialized groups had nine times the odds of police having backup, um, call, you know, calling backup when, when they did a stop. There was also um, the, this, these particular... 
particular racialized groups has four times the odds of their passengers being questioned by the police. So, you know, that's just um, extraordinary. And asked them 13 times the odds of having their passengers asked to leave the car, um, twice the odds of, of the driver being asked to leave the car, and twice the odds of drivers being asked why they're in a particular area. So you can just start to see, witness these kind of totally different um, investigative strategies that are being rolled out when the police are stopping um, doing particular, you know, intercepts with, with targeted racialized groups compared to white people. So, yeah, very disturbing to, to kind of get very. this evidence. When, I mean, we know we people have talked about this. There have complaints been made to legal services, Aboriginal legal services, um, just in general about this kind of difference. But here we have, you know, statistical evidence of these clear differences rolling out. So, Absolutely. And during your, your introduction, actually, you you speak about an Aboriginal woman who was pulled over by the police and the the police were quite degrading to her. There was There was a lot of unjustified police investigation. And what I found interesting there is that you you talk about the fact that the thesis demonstrates um, that there really isn't a lot of external scrutiny of police. Is is yeah. that is that accurate? Yeah, that's very right. accurate, isn't it? Yeah, so so that's right. Well, what what happens is that these stops are carrying on every day. So we know that um, the police have in fact told us that they have about fourteen thousand contacts with the public on a daily basis. And these stops, you know, so this the these results are showing that the stop types are very different and the experiences are very different depending on people's racialized backgrounds. And yet what we know is that these stops yeah. don't aren't subject to any kind of scrutiny. And they're barely internally scrutinized, let alone any external scrutiny. And so it's it's just kind of laughable to, to think that there's any, you know, when police deny racial profiling, it's just like, well, you know, you're not even looking at what you're doing, let alone, you know, how can you possibly deny um, deny you're engaged in racial profiling? It's very disturbing that, that, that these, um, these kinds of encounters happen on, on a kind of a routine basis, and yet there is nothing that is being done to monitor them. Nothing at all. There's such a lack of transparency in Australia, isn't there, about who, how and for what reason police subject individuals and communities to investigation. And what I... I mean, I know that I've interviewed you quite a few times pre-pandemic, many years ago, um, and the same thing is still happening and there doesn't seem to be a lot of improvement here on how to monitor racial profiling. There really doesn't seem to be a lot of data here that that is correlated. So this thesis is really useful. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. And I guess what it really points out is that, yeah, the, the Hale-Michael case that settled, this was that case brought by a group of African and Afghani young people, settled in 2013, and the, the police responded to that settlement with two public inquiries into their field contact and multicultural training and set up a whole new department, the Priority Communities Department, that was meant to deal with these issues. And they, in 2015, introduced Australia's first anti-racial profiling policies, 
but what this thesis shows, so these, this data that I have here is from 2018, 2019, so four and five years after that policy, is that no racial profiling has continued. It's a routine practice that is happening in Victoria and that, that policy and the anti-racial profiling policy is meaningless. It's, it's a piece of paper in the Victoria Police Manual that is not being monitored, it's not being checked on, it's not being enforced in any way. So that's right. We see, What we see here is this really clear example of the, I guess, the, the reactive spin that the police agency goes into when there's kind of litigation. It doesn't actually carry, there's, there's no deep down integration of those ideas into everyday policing practices. And I think this is really critical when we just we just heard the Chief Commissioner on the 8th of May um, making an apology to First Nations people and promising that he and the police will review all of their practices and operations to ensure that they do not systemically disadvantage uh, First Nations communities. So we've got this kind of really great statement from the police, but... We need to be super alert to the ongoing um, failure of the police to actually do anything to implement those those high ideals that they're suggesting. So it's, yeah, like it really, um, you know, I, I have to hear that even though that was a wonderful apology and, you know, I'm sure it brought tears to so many people's eyes, like it's just such a, to finally have the police admitting systemic racism is just its just so amazing that they did that. But there's that immediately the cynicism rises up based on this history that actually, no, what are you really going to do? So so I think, yeah, we, we, we need to really um, question how realistic, you know, how sincere that apology is actually going to be in practice. And in case people have just tuned in, this is the Doing Time Show, 3CR Community Radio, and you are hearing an interview with Tamar Hopkins who's talking about a thesis about racial profiling in Australia. Leaps and Bounds Music Festival is warming up winter in Yarra. Don't miss the Archie Roach Foundation presenting Singing Our Futures, a fundraiser with Emma Donovan, Kiwak Cannell and Kian at the Corner Hotel. Explore the program by visiting the website lbmf.com.au. Leaps and Bounds, 13th to 16th of July. Yarra City Council is a 3CR supporter. See what I want to think and now's the time to grab it. Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapenya Dance Troupe, Bandok Tati, the Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul and Firestarter Chris Hume. In Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm with free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is free. 
Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival and Yarra City Council, a 3CR supporter.
issues that still pervade Australian society. And that primary issue is white Australian racism. We've got a clear-cut case here of intentional genocide from the get-go, from the round table in England. The true history in this country isn't told. The government always say that they're committed to a truth-telling process. Well, where is your truth-telling process? I really believe that at the end of the day, the truth will emerge. You can't fight against the truth. It's, it's, a, it's an unstoppable force. It's indestructible. So deal with it. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Three CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. We demand the full restoration of all Indigenous lands and resources, and we demand the immediate cessation of all forms of exploitation and destruction of our land. We're here to remind you of our sovereignty and our original demand from day one. It started with intentional genocide of our people around the round table in England. It's all lies here. Everything's a lie. It's a great opportunity right now to step into a sovereign, independent republic. We demand a treaty. We demand our lands back. We demand to stop black death in custody. You're listening to The Doin' Time Show, returning now to an interview with Tamar Hopkins, speaking about her thesis, Understanding Racial Profiling in Australia. So the purpose of the thesis is not to tell racialised people what they already know. The thesis is for scholars, policymakers, legislators, lawyers and courts. 
Can you talk about the the strategy for making racism in policing visible? strategies that um, that I undertook to make racial profiling visible. So the first one was to actually collect and, um, and obtain data on the problem. So that's a really critical strategy to have this data now available, to be able to provide this data, and I was able to provide this data to Europe on the, on the 2nd of May, to hear his data that shows racialized people First Nations, including, are being treated in this really different way. So that's that's a really clear aim of this thesis is to make it visible for policymakers in that way. But the second, you know, another aim was to really start the process of shifting the way our courts deal with racialized racial profiling. And so, um, so what I was able to do in this in this process, and, and I guess I've been aware of this from running cases in Victoria that a lot of the most important case law on racial profiling actually comes out of Canada. So I was really interested to know, well, what's going on in Canada and, and what is it about Canadian, like the Canadian legal system that is producing, you know, really good, important case law on racial profiling? Because Canada and Australia are quite similar spaces. We're both um, multicultural countries, with unresolved colonial histories, brutality on invasion and, and its but ongoing issues of, you know, racial profiling and issues around race. So it should be a, you know, really, we both have um, our legal systems are based and arise from common law, which comes out of the UK. And so, you know, why is it that Canada is, you know, going so far and we in Australia are not? And people often say, oh, well, it's because Canada has this great, you know, charter of human rights. But the reality is it's not about that because, I mean, we now have a charter of human rights in Victoria and there is one in the ACT uh, and just more recently in Queensland. And none of these charters have, have, um, have meant that there's been, a, you know, a jurisprudence about racial profiling being developed in these spaces. So there's just there's something really different, and the other thing is that we've got you know there's a human rights charter in um, in act in the UK, and and yet the UK is very poor on racial profiling case law. It's just not really developed there at all. So there's something kind of really different about what's happening in Canada. And so what I what I did was have a look at you know what what is happening. And I guess I, I can really just speculate into why these differences are happening, but one of them could be that in Canada, lawyers, are they don't have a split profession. So if you're acting for your client, um, you, you get your instruction for your client, and then you go in and you make the arguments in court. You don't have to convince your barrister to make the arguments in court like in, in the UK and Australia. And here we've got like barristers who kind of have expertise in trials and and aren't necessarily as attuned to their clients experience as as you know solicitors may be so that's just one potential thing that you have yeah. the, the this kind of one person who's acting but the other thing is that I guess there's you know a lot more racialized judges and lawyers in Canada than there are in Australia and the UK so that could be part of it um, but yeah, there's, there's just been this kind of incredible understanding, a real kind of deep understanding of the way 
racism manifests in the criminal justice system, the the legal, criminal legal system in Canada that that just we haven't even tasted here. We don't even understand. You know, the language doesn't even appear in our in our cases. We have it in you know the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and kind of um, you know occasional cases, but really it's it's missing in so much of our criminal case law. So. So what was interesting in Canada is that they were actually drawing on UK decisions and interpreting them in ways that we just have failed to do with interpret in Australia. So they have um, they've interpreted this idea called um, an investigative um, search. So uh, sorry, an investigative stop. So in Canada, if if the police stop someone to ask them questions, they need to have reasonable grounds to um, connect that person to an actual offence before they're allowed to do that investigative stop of that person. Whereas here in Australia, it's really muddy and there's not a lot of case law that would limit the police from being able to do that. So they've created much more rigid boundaries around police powers, you know, clearer thresholds, and they have, you know, a much... So, so they've got more restrictive um, law, common law that prevents police from just engaging with whoever they want on the street, but also a much deeper understanding of the way systemic racism operates and it, 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 the courts will allow, will, under, will, will take into account histories of racism, will take into account kind of localised um, knowledge about what is going on to frame encounters between police and racialized people. So they, they kind of allow that lens. And in fact, they say, not only should you allow, you should, should you, um, you know, take that into account, but you must take that into account because you can't actually judge the credibility of a police officer interacting with a minority person unless you understand the whole racialized history and context of that of that area and so that's kind of like that's that's where i really want to see australian lawyers kind of really um, understanding taking that on board starting to kind of use arguments to build in the the context of racism into their into their cases and also to start to use this data that now exists to show that to provide information about the racial context of all police encounters with minority people. So that's the that's the second strategy to make racism visible is by getting Australian courts and lawyers to start talking and arguing about this issue. So in case we've got new listeners that have tuned in that don't really know what racial profiling is, are you able to document or to, to speak about you know, an example of racial profiling? Yeah. Or, or a case, or, you know, or someone that it's happened to, just so that we can make it clear. Yeah, sure. So there's a good example um, that is, is the, the Carver case. It's the case where um, the police were, um, were driving along and pulled over these, so there were a couple of, African young people in a car driving in one direction down the street and the police were driving in the other direction down the street. 
and they decided to pull up that, you know, do a big U-turn, come in behind them, pursue them for a bit, put on the lights and pull them over for a routine intercept. And so when they did this routine intercept at this car, they then um, uh, got out, asked the passenger for his details, his name, he refused to give them his name. They asked again. He refused again. Um, they asked again. He refused again. And he got out of the car and an, an altercation happened between the police and the passenger. And there was also a, a situation... The police asked to search the car by consent. So they um, they asked the driver if they could search the car. So what we have here is the police are claiming that this is just a, a routine intersect... And the police were allowed to do these routine intercepts for two reasons. So they can do them for licence and registration checks and they can do them for preliminary drug and alcohol checks. So they didn't do a preliminary drug and alcohol check on the driver and their questioning of the passenger and request to do a search of the vehicle demonstrates that they were not... You know, that wasn't actually the purpose. Their purpose wasn't to do this routine intercept. This was actually... a they wanted to question these, the passenger and the driver to, you know, it, it was a broader, it was an investigative stop. It was like, it was a proactive stop. And so what, in this case, um, it's, it's the police never used racial terms here. However, the driver and passenger were clear that they were being racially profiled and that there was no, um, you know, this whole thing was just an attempt to harass them. And so the question is, how do we, how do, you know, in the absence of the police going, yes, I stopped this person because of their race, how do we in Australia kind of, or anywhere, you know, say that actually this was racial profiling? And so, so what, what we can do here now is that we've got this data that shows that these random intercepts are actually far more likely to be experienced by African people and white people. And also that it's kind of, unjustified post-stop experience that was experienced by the passengers in the car is much more likely to be experienced by um, racialized people and white people. So we've got that. And then if we understand, so in the, the um, Canadian case law tells us that racial profiling will never be, um, we will never prove it through admission by a police officer. What we need to do is understand whether the circumstances of the stop correspond to the phenomena of racial profiling. So we need to understand what is, the, what is the phenomena of racial profiling. And the phenomena of racial profiling is understood by the fact that these kinds of stops happen much more likely to African people. And you need to understand that these that there's, these stops occurred in the whole context of complaints being made by the African community about over-policing, it being this big you know, racial profiling claim in, in Victoria. And so when you when you kind of look in, take all of that sort of social context into perspective into account and understand um, the you know the data, you can start to say yes, this was stop that was racial profiling. This experience, race was a factor here. Absolutely. So and our our um, race discrimination act says that we race doesn't need to be the only factor behind the stop. So long as race was a factor, it doesn't even have to be the dominant or substantial factor behind the police treatment. It has to be just a factor. So 
if race was a factor in why the police pulled over these two African young people, then that is racial discrimination under Australian law and that evidence should be should be excluded. So in this case, the Carver case was an exclusion of evidence case, um, asking that the court to not take into account whatever happened after the stop because the stop and the treatment of these young people was, was based on, well, was um, improper. Absolutely. Tamar, thank you. Look, that was... Uh a really concise example, and I really appreciate that. I think let's uh, – I think I'm going to have to finish pretty soon, but let's just quickly – can you just let listeners know where this thesis can be read? Is a pub, there is a public version out there. Yep, that's right. So if people put into Google my name, Tamar Hopkins, and Understanding Racial Profiling in Australia is the name of the thesis then they will be able to, they'll go straight to a site where they can download a, a PDF version um, of, of, that, um, of that PhD. Yeah. Any final comments? Um, I guess just watch this space because, yeah, this is not a story that is disappearing, as everyone knows. So, um, yeah, there'll be, more, there'll be more to talk about soon. Wonderful. Tamar, thank you so much. It was lovely to have you. I mean, I, I really wanted to... My intention for the Doing Time show was to have a two-part series with you, and this is our second interview, so I'm hoping that we can have a lot more education about racial profiling that the police are held to account. We can't have police investigating police. Absolutely, absolutely. So right, Marissa. Thank you very much for the Thanks opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thank you very yeah. much. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Tamar Hopkins. And Tamar has just finished speaking about a thesis about understanding racial profiling in Australia. And we're nearing the end of our show. And we're going to be going out now pretty soon with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band. And it's goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And as Tamar says, watch this space and be kind to each other. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
sisters. 